Okay. Reading this morning is, is from Luke, and I'm taking it from the NIV um, version of the Bible. Luke 19, commencing at verse 28, and through to the end of the chapter. And Jesus, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead of him went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put, it, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build up an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Margaret. Now, before we get into trying to understand those verses, I, I've spotted Ken and Shirley Martin are here. It's lovely to see you, and I believe, is it next week you're heading to uh, Queensland? Um, now, if you don't know Ken and Shirley, now I've only met them just more recently, but um, they've, they were part of Kilsai South Baptist Church. How long ago are we talking? Five, ten? 12 years ago, there you go, and, and were instrumental in setting up the missions group here at the church that still runs, so um, blessings to you both, it's lovely to see you, I'm sure there'll be lots of people that want to uh, crowd around you after, after church as well to say uh, their farewells, so lovely to see you, thanks for coming. Well this morning I want to, uh, I'm going to grab this because I feel more comfortable, is, can you, is that alright, can you hear me alright? This morning I want to talk to you about contrast. Uh, contrast is the difference in luminance or colour that makes one thing more distinguishable out of something else. And you'll see it in some of these images that are going to come up on the screen. Oh, was there another one in there? Or maybe I missed it. Oh, was there one with uh, a whole lot of little pictures? No, sorry, Jordan. Did I miss it? Oh, goodness. Sorry, mate. Well, that's no good. Contrast is if you've got... So I had a, a picture of a row of apples... 
and there was all these green apples. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Sorry, mate. I put it in the wrong spot, obviously, so I'm so sorry. A whole lot of apples, and there's one red apple. There's a whole lot of black umbrellas, and there's the colourful one. Or there's a blue orange, and out of the blue comes this bright, uh, bright orange. Out of the blue orange, figure that out. But it's the contrast is there. You can see contrast. Now, today's passages that Margaret just read to us has a few contrasts sewn into it that helps us dive into understanding how the kingdom of God and how where we can live as the people of God in the kingdom of God contrasted to the way that the world lives. So I want to pray and we'll get stuck into learning about that. Now, Lord, uh, give us clarity and understanding of the scripture today. Help us to learn new things from a passage that we hear quite a lot uh, as we lead into Easter. Bless us, Lord. Uh, give us open hearts to hear your word. Amen. On the 4th of December 1977, when I was all of five months old in Bangui, the capital of the Central African Empire, the world witnessed the coronation of the Imperial Majesty Bokasa number one. Does anyone remember this? No. So when they say the world, probably not us. The price for this event, this coronation of this emperor, was $25 million in 1977 in a country ravaged with poverty. The design and choreography was done by a French designer and no expense was spared. At 10.10am, the trumpets sounded and the roll of the drums announced that the king or the emperor was approaching. The procession began with eight of Bokassa's 29 children, followed by the heir to the throne, Bokassa II. Catherine was the favourite of Bokassa's nine wives and was wearing a $73,000 gown strewn with pearls that she'd picked herself. The emperor arrived in a coach with golden eagles and drawn by six sort of horses that matched one another. His Highness came out with a 32-pound weight robe decorated with 785,000 pearls. And it was all gold embroidery. He wore white gloves and pearl slippers. He wore a gold crown with wreaths like, a, like the old Roman sort of crowns did. He was then seated on a $2.5 million eagle throne and took off his gold wreath crown and put on his $2.5 million crown topped with an 80-carat diamond. At 10.43, he was declared the new emperor. Whew, a lot of expense, a lot of pomp, a lot of just wow. Guess how long he lasted? Two years! All of that for two years worth of his reign, because his reign was horrible. Bacasa, he tried to establish a kingdom to endure, so he would do whatever it took to make his kingdom work, and failed dismally. And the French had to go in and overrun him and rescue all the people that had been either enslaved or captured. You know, all that pomp, all that power, it got him nowhere. And it seems to be the story all too often of those who value worldly riches and power. Those who get it and seek it for themselves. So they somehow don't fully fulfill life. And sometimes in that they choose death 
and we hear it in our sports people, in our musicians, in our celebrities. Talented young athletes, actors, who haven't last because their kingdom doesn't last. So in contrast, today's scripture from Luke, it shows us another king. A king who rode humbly on a colt with cloaks of others thrown across it as a saddle and a path strewn with more jackets as a semi-red carpet as such. It definitely didn't look like Bokassa number one story of coronation, but it was more than significant because this king's reign is unending. This humble entry as the king has not and will not end. You know, this week I've reflected personally on this well-known story. It's told yearly. We, we really tell this story yearly. And we do it normally the week before Easter. But um, this time I, I wanted us to, to take a little bit of a longer run-up to Easter. And so this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So all the other parts that we'll go through is Jesus within Jerusalem leading to the, uh, to the following week in the lifeline of, of Jesus, I suppose. But I had to ask myself, when looking at these contrasting kingdoms, which kingdom do I live in? Does the kingdom that my, the basis for all my decisions reflect the kingdom that Jesus portrayed as he rode in on the donkey? Because I have to admit, it's pretty easy to get caught up with all the glitz and the glamour. I, I love the... the 2019 version of Aladdin the movie with Will Smith as the genie. If you've seen it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. And if you can see the, the screen up there, and there's this, this time where Aladdin, um, he meets the princess and wants to go back into the princess's uh, sort of place. And, and, and so uh, uh, the, the genie sort of decks him out as this prince, Prince Ali. And, and if, you've, if you've watched the movie, it's this big parade of just animals and, and sort of things, streamers going up in the air and it's just this massive parade and so much fun. It's really good and you can't help but be drawn into the, the excitement of it. You sort of sit there and you, you sort of jig them with it because it's just, it's, I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> the king in the this, in this space, so the princess's dad, he sort of stands there. He's seen all the all the princes come through and want to take his daughter as in marriage, and he's sitting there with a sort of sullen face. And even he starts to tap his finger a little bit because it's just you can't help but be drawn into it. The excitement of Will Smith singing along, or the genie singing along, and the glitz and glamour, and uh, it's just it's just a wonderful sort of show of 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 this this prince coming in, and it's easy to get caught up in it. But it's all easy to get caught up in the excitement of a kingdom that shows bells and whistles. Not so much coming to, for a prince coming to marry a princess, but a kingdom that promises wealth, promises colour, promises riches, promises happiness, because that's the message we get through the world. I saw it in myself. We, uh, we were looking for a car for a little while. We were going to buy a new car. And car sales people are masters at this. They, you set a price range. This is my budget. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to buy a car that's worth this much. And we go to the, 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 
um, places and say, I've got this much money, this is what I want to spend. And you go and they take you to uh, a car and you go, well, that's a nice car. Yeah, that's really nice. And we want something a little bit better than what we had, something that's going to last us a while. I'm not mechanically minded, it's just something that's going to keep us going, that sort of thing. So, oh, that's a good car. This is the LS model. Oh, good, oh, that's nice, that's a good car. But we've got one with an X in it, the LSX. Ooh. Go and check the LSX out. And the LSX, is, it looks exactly the same, maybe with this different colour line on it or something like that, and might have a different radio in it or stereo in it, and a slightly different trim or look at little neater, some cosmetic differences. But then you've gone, oh, I've got to have that one. And it's $8,000 more, but you go, oh, I've got to have that one. And then they say, well, you know what, there is another, the LSX Ultra. And they shove that in front of you and they go, whoa, this one now looks slightly different again. And you're going, I can't not have that one. And all of a sudden, you're looking at 12,000 more than what you were originally going to play. I know it because I almost lived it. <laughs> it's easy to be lured, and that's just a tiny example, easy to be lured into just one more thing. The lure of having the best car, the best phone, the lure of wealth creation, the lure of fame or success, even in your sphere. The lure of being the, the big boss. The lure of knowing all the knowledge. The lure of having all the information. Having all the best gossip. It's a lure and it's a trap that we can get stuck in in our world. And in and of themselves, sometimes these things aren't bad. I'm not saying that if you have success and you've been successful in business and you've had finances well, and, and that, I'm not saying they're bad, but it's a lure because it's a trap that can end up costing you. It's a trap that can end up, and I'm not just talking financially, it's a trap that we can lose sight of the kingdom of God and end up serving the wrong kingdom. We need to be thinking about the kingdom of God that's represented in the scripture with Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not like Prince Ali, but humble on a cult. A humble kingdom that cares for orphans and widows, who heals the lame, who eats with the lowest of society, who, who, who does, touches the lepers. Such a stark contrast to the kingdoms of the Roman Empire at the time, who, who, whose face was plastered on all the currency. You know who owned that kingdom because the face was everywhere. So we have to ask, which kingdom are you serving? Which kingdom are you serving? So let's dive into, into Luke's account of the triumphal entry and, and, and uh, we'll see what we can learn from it. We start our Luke journey um, as Jesus enters Jerusalem and, like I said, we're going to lead it to Easter as well. But what I want us to do as we explore Luke now, I want us to keep into the back of our minds what we're learning from the person of Jesus in his last week on this earth. With his interactions with people, with the interactions that he has with the crowds, his disciples, the religious leaders, what, what is he teaching us? What is God teaching us? And how do we become more Christ-like in and through our learnings here? How do we be shaped to be the people of God 
in and through the story of Luke. Because as you, as you read through Luke, you know that the, the book of Acts is sort of written by Luke as well. So it follows on from the story of, of this, this disciple, the group of disciples who learn and grow through Jesus and these people who learn and grow through Jesus who then move in, out into the world without the Messiah standing next to them and take this message to the ends of the earth. So we want to capture a little bit of that out of Luke, that we may be those who are transformed spiritually, that we may be empowered to speak out into the world that we live. So we want to set the scene. Because at this time, everything was moving towards Jerusalem. There's four things to set the scene. The first thing that we were going to set the scene is, is that Jerusalem has been the destination that Jesus has been working towards all this time. When we step back and we'll look through the rest of Luke, hopefully through the rest of this year, or part of this year, later in the year, we're going to find that Jesus had been journeying towards Jerusalem for some time now. In fact, in Luke 9.31 and Luke 9.51, he speaks to his disciples about this death that is going to be coming to him. And he talks about it, uh, that it will be in Jerusalem. Jesus knew the very purpose of going to Jerusalem was for his death. The disciples, they may have missed it. Otherwise, they may have said, Jesus, maybe we don't go to Jerusalem. You're sort of getting a bit closer and you're talking about your death in Jerusalem, but we don't really want that. But whatever the case, no one was going to stop Jesus in going to Jerusalem. The second thing to help us understand this is Jerusalem was where the Messiah was going to become their king. So Luke's gospel doesn't consider the, the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. We don't hear that in the reading that, that Margaret read today. But we know through Matthew's account of the triumphal entry that the people would have been waiting for this Messiah to come into Jerusalem and to be riding on a donkey they would have seen that as a fulfillment of that prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. There would have been an excitement. Hey, I've, I've read this. Hey, I'm seeing this fulfilled. The third thing that helps us understand this is that Passover was on Jerusalem's doorstep. The Passover feast was nearing, and, and each year that brought spiritual pilgrims to Jerusalem. And, and what it did, it reignited their memory of what God had done to their ancestors in and through Egypt and bring them out of Egypt and into sort of a promised space out of the slavery that they've been captured in. So each year, this Passover would, would sort of heighten their expectation of a Messiah, that the Messiah might come this year. This might be the year. Perhaps it was. And the fourth thing that will help us is that, and help the people see that maybe Jesus was that one, is that Jesus was performing miracles along the way. Towards Jerusalem, it was attracting bigger crowds, and people were starting to have that little chat. Oh, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's it. The big one that he did was in Bethany, just where, where he was now. His friend Lazarus had died and he raised him from dead. That's a fairly decent sort of miracle to perform. And that gets tongues wagging. So there's really positive movement within the people going into Jerusalem. These crowds that were coming from all over and all of a sudden... Jesus comes on a donkey, and they're thinking, Messiah? 
However, there are also some great concerns, mostly from the religious leaders, who were concerned that the raising of, of Lazarus was, was actually starting to threaten the systems that they'd set up, that they'd had in place, their own kingdoms, I suppose, a fear that was based in them that, well, if this goes on, if the Messiah comes, I might lose what I've set up in my kingdom. So these religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus, and these crowds are calling him the Messiah. So, so you can see the stage is, is set. In this one passage, the stage is really set. People are ready to find their Messiah, and Jesus comes towards them, fulfilling a prophecy that the Messiah is coming. Jesus is starting to show his true identity, his deity. He's starting to show them who he really is. And as he heads towards the Mount of Olives, he says to these two other, other disciples, go find a cult tied there, a cult that no one's um, ridden before. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you, Where, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Generally, when you're looking for to take something that's not yours, we probably call that stealing, probably. Stealing? <laughs> that's what Jesus asked the disciples to do. Go and take it. And if someone asks you about it, that's all right. Just tell them the Lord needs it. And sure enough, they get sprung. <laughs> They're taking these, untying this cult. They get sprung. Why are you untying my cult? <laughs> and the only answer they give is the Lord needs it. They didn't say, hey, you know the guy that was in Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead? That guy, that, that guy who we reckon might be the Messiah, he's asked for it, so you probably better give it to him. He just said, the Lord needs it. Why did the owners of that cult, when they heard the words, the, the Lord needs it, why did they just go, all right, well, you take it? Now, we can't be for sure, and there's different commentaries that talk about different things, but perhaps the, the, um, the owners had such a reverent fear, fear of the Lord, perhaps upon hearing that the Lord needs it, might have clicked into place something of their thought process around this Messiah coming, that they said, we've got to give it up, regardless. We don't even know whether they're going to get this, this, this cult back. We don't know if it's going to be taken for good. We don't know who these people are. But maybe, maybe if this is for the Lord, maybe we need to. I talked about contrast. Here's contrast number one in this passage. See, a kingdom perspective is willing to give up possessions for the Lord, earthly possessions for the Lord. An earthly possession holds tight to everything that they own. The fact that the owner gave the cult up, it, it reminds us that possessions, our possessions are God's possessions first. Our provisions have come from God in the first place. So giving up what has been graciously given is no longer as big an issue when we have a kingdom perspective. I remember reading, reading a devotion. Well, it was in England. I was quite young. Um, as a youth pastor. And, and day one, every day had an action to do. And it was pretty hard hitting because day one's action was take something that you value and sell it to like the local cash converters. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like a fun thing to do. And the big idea was that, that you, you might be tied to something and you've got to trust that actually you don't need that specifically. It was a huge thing to ask. Are you willing to forgo, <coughs> excuse me, to forgo a, a possession that you love 
for the sake of the kingdom is in essence what it says. And they did say, go back the next day and you can buy it back type thing. But yeah, it might not be there. Maybe our application doesn't need to be that severe. I'm not going to go and say, find your, your most loved position because I'm not taking my guitar to, to cash converters. I'm just not going to do that. I love my guitar. I love Jesus more. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm not asking you to take that and do that. Rather, the question could be, how are we using what God's given us for the glory of God? I reckon that's a better question. How are we using what our possessions? It might be, um, might be your, your phone. You might value your phone so much, but how are you using your phone to glorify God? It might be your, your drum kit or it might be a computer, whatever it might be. How are you using it to glorify God more? And goes beyond that. How are you using the gifts that he's given you, the abilities that he's given you to glorify God? Because the reality is that God's chosen to leave the work of God in our hands. God has chosen to leave his work in our hands. So we're here to be used for the kingdom of God. So the question for us is this. What has God given you that you will use to give back to him for his kingdom? What has God given you that you'll use to give back to the kingdom? Moving through the story, cloaks are thrown onto the donkey as a saddle and he, Jesus comes towards Jerusalem and a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They sing out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Peace and, they probably sung that already. That's probably a song they knew. Peace and glory in the highest... Some Pharisees in the crowd said to, the te- to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're making too much noise. <laughs> and Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I've often wondered if the crowds at this stage really knew what was actually going on, what the significance of their actions and words to Jesus were as they headed out towards Jerusalem, shouting out about this coming king. I wondered if they really understood it. See, Luke, he doesn't use the palm branches, he focuses on the coats. But in essence, people are using their jackets to make a trail for the donkey, a trail that was sort of generally like an emperor would have had a a trail coming into into Jerusalem. So whether they understood it or not, by putting their jackets down, they are, in essence, raising Jesus up to a royalty position in everyone's eyes. And when we can consider our, our, our King Bokassa, number one, that we shared about earlier, and then we put him next to Jesus riding in on a donkey with some coats in front of him, the contrast is so stark. They're a million miles apart. It would have been a contrast that the people would have understood because the Roman rule coming into town would have been about prowess. It would have been about having the big armies around. It would have made a big deal of it. It would have been loud noises. Wealth would have been evidence. Total contrast to Jesus. So the contrast too is that Jesus rides in on this donkey. The Roman processions, they show off the emperor. A humble procession versus a... Well, we call it the triumphal entry, but it's, a, it's an entry of triumph for the Romans. Jesus here, he's making a major statement about who he is. With him riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, it was Jesus' way of saying to those who are present, I am the king of Israel. But there were no armies around him. There were no swords. There was no royal robes. Just a humble servant. 
So what do we learn from Jesus in this contrast? Well, Philippians 2, um, and I use this, uh, this is probably my favourite verses. I use it all the time. It tells us what we learn. And listen to it. I'm not going to put it on the, on the thing. I want you to listen to it. Even shut your eyes if you need to. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross. See, God's not impressed with the show. With Prince Ali coming out, God wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't have been sort of impressed with that. Rather, Jesus made himself low, riding on a donkey. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we remain humble with this good news that we're given? How do we remain humble in sharing Christ? There's a third contrast, and that's between the crowd and the Pharisee. Now, the crowds, they sang and praised Jesus. They called him the king. And whilst the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, were telling Jesus to, to, to make him stop, it, it seemed that there was a threat there. They were threatened. Yet what they didn't realise is that when they see the Messiah, this, this king, the praise can't be helped. Jesus even says, if you keep the crowds quiet, the rocks are going to start saying, these inner objects are going to start crying out. See, the crowds are excited by the possibilities, looking and hoping that Jesus may be the one. They mightn't understand what the one really meant at that time, but hoping. So they're singing, they're making a great noise. Yet the contrast is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, found threat by the very same possibility. This is the Messiah. If he's the Messiah, that's going to change everything for us. What a contrast between these two groups of people. The question for us is, if you love Jesus as your Lord, how is your praise going? Do we, do we praise God? Do we look at our, our Lord and say, I can praise him? Because if you're not, the rocks are going to do it for you. There's one final contrast that I want to bring to you this morning. And it again involves the crowd, the people that are praising God and, and praising Jesus as, as this Messiah. They're placing the coats in front of the donkey. They're singing. It's a joyous occasion. And understandably so. They finally found what they were looking for, the Messiah. He's coming. He's riding into Jerusalem. This is going to be the thing. What an occasion to sing and celebrate. That's great. Yet the final contrast comes in the latter parts of the passage, ones that we are often missed when we talk about Palm Sunday as such. It starts at verse 41. If you've got your Bibles, you want to see this. He says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. It's a joyous occasion. And Jesus wept over the city. There's only three occasions where the, in the Bible where it says that Jesus wept. He wept for his friend Lazarus. He wept here in, as he heads into Jerusalem. And in Hebrews 5, it talks about Jesus offering up prayers uh, with cries, with it, where, as, he, as he weeps. So, so we, when Jesus weeps, we need to listen. He was moved to tears over something that was going to happen in Jerusalem. Everyone else is shouting, screaming, excitement, this is fantastic. It's such a contrast of Jesus's sort of emotion to the celebration of the people. And Jesus says why. 
He says why he's crying in verses 42 to 45. He says, uh, he wept over it, coming to Jerusalem, he wept over it and said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What would bring you peace? The people are going, the Messiah's here. This is going to be peace. They're going to overroll, they're going to roll over the Roman Empire. We're going to finally have peace. But Jesus said, it's now hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And the people are going, but it doesn't matter because you're going to fix that. You're the Messiah. They will dash you to the ground and your children and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That would have been very confusing for the crowd. That would have been very confusing to see Jesus weeping. See, Jesus sees something that the crowds just couldn't see then. Jesus sees that this celebration will not last. And Jesus sees that what they're hoping for to bring them peace is ultimately not what is going to happen. There are no armies coming to overthrow the Roman rule. The Messiah is not going to build a, a kingdom up right here, right now for them to replace the thing that they're looking for. There's no uh, set way that this is going to happen in the way that the people are thinking. God's plan is the salvation for all. And if you read through the New Testament, you begin to see God's great plan open up for all people. Yet the plan that I think we're on the lips of every person that's shouting uh, um, praises to God with Jesus coming into Jerusalem was that finally someone's going to win. And Jesus says, no, in fact, it's going to be destruction. It's going to be bad news. And the culmination of all that was that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. The people wanted an immediate Messiah. They wanted the destruction of Rome. Rather, the, the peace that Jesus offers was going to come through the exact opposite of what they wanted. Only the death of the Messiah was going to bring them ultimate peace. It was not the triumph that they expected. Rather, it was a, a tragedy at the hands of the enemy they wanted pulled down that the kingdom of God could come. If ever there was a contrast between kingdoms, that is it. So as we close today, my final question to us. How do you see the kingdom of God? How do you see the kingdom of God? I wonder when you look out your front window, whether you can see God's handprint, God's fingerprint in and around your neighbourhood. In the relationships that you're starting to build with your five closest neighbours as you get to know their name. In the chance meeting at the park of someone that knew someone else that knew someone else that went to this church one time but they've never been. <laughs> in the cafes that we go to. I wonder if we look out, do we have the pain and sorrow like Jesus because there are people who have never heard the message of Christ and they find they're looking for peace in the wrong areas. I wonder if you can see your local neighbourhood and seeing the kingdom of God's reach into it. It takes all of us for that because that's what God's done, allowed us to build into that kingdom. It's a contrasting kingdom. It's not a kingdom that the world acknowledges, but it's a kingdom that God's put in each of us to share with everyone else. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are sovereign. 
God, through our, our, our reading, as we unpack Scripture, it comes to life in such ways, Lord. I just pray that, that today we've heard from you that this kingdom is a kingdom that is life-changing. Now, Lord, we pray that we may be people of the kingdom rather than people of the world. May we be in this world but kingdom living that others will know you through us. So we thank you for your word. Bless us, Lord. Amen.